All right, good morning, church. How are we doing? <laughs> hey, my name is Vince. I'm one of the pastors here. Delighted to be with you. Quick uh, update on the leg. Some of you know I have gout. It happens when you eat and drink things you shouldn't eat and drink too much of. That doesn't mean I eat way too much of it, but just too much to cause a gout flare-up. It got, when it started in my foot, um, then I, you know, you walk funny. You know, when something's hurting, then you start to compensate, and so then other stuff starts to hurt. And when you reach my age, most of you don't understand this, but when you get to be my age, a ripe 35, okay, <laughs> stuff just doesn't start working like it used to, okay? So then the foot started hurting more, and then what happened is the gout spread to my knee, and that's just been like the worst pain of my life. And so if I had a few friends over on Friday night, and it just got weird, my screams. Like it was multiple pitches. It was very, very awkward. So I'm on a ton of naproxen. And so uh, I'm also got a bit of a fever. I'm super hot. So if anything I say that you just think is unbiblical and terrible, that's just the naproxen. <laughs> if it's good, that's me. Uh, so, or the Spirit of God, I suppose. So, um, so anyway, that's just an update. We'll get through this. And, and I just... I felt like I had to be here. I couldn't miss, I couldn't miss this, this sermon. This is something we've been talking about doing for quite a while. So I'm actually going to pray for us again for this word and for the Spirit of God to, to do work today because it is. I think it's one of the most uh, important with what we talked about last week as well, the most important things we'll talk about here. So let's bow our heads in a word of prayer. Father God, we thank you for your grace and your mercy. We thank you for your love. And Spirit, just briefly, we, we ask that you would be the one that speaks, convicts, changes, and unites your people in a common goal and mission. We thank you that we are your people. As such, God, will we live in response to what you've truly called us to and who we truly are. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear this morning, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I start off with a few different quotes. This first quote was a quote from Anthony this week when I ran over kind of what the outline was for this week. I said, well, this is what I'm going to talk about I said, what do you think? And his response, quote number one of the day was, man, I think we're done, <laughs> which isn't super encouraging or exciting because what we're going to talk about today is pretty heavy. And the reality is this, is that idols just don't go quietly. Deep embedded idols of individualism and, and things we'll talk about today, they just don't go quietly. Like, there's real depth to rooting those out and it hurts and we don't like to hear it. Uh, and so there's some real stress and anxiety, if I'm honest, about talking about some of the stuff we'll talk about today. But I think it's that necessary. The second one is a quote from the book Fahrenheit 451, which is one of my favorite books by an author, Ray Bradbury. He says this, and if you're not too familiar with the book, I'll just say this. When he's, he's writing a story, and, and let's just say it's imperative that the people open their eyes. And he says this. He says, we need not be let alone. We need to be really bothered once in a while. How long is it since you were really bothered? about something important, about something real. The last quote comes from the scriptures, Matthew chapter 6, verse 24, says this, No one can serve two masters. Father, he will hate the one and love the other. He will be devoted to one and despise the other. Okay, we've maybe heard this in the church. You can't serve two masters, right? It just doesn't work that way. The title of this sermon today is One Kingdom Too Many. The idea is pretty simple. I think as we look upon our cultural landscape in our world, there's two kingdoms that vie and compete for your and my affection, worship, and life. And we have been so tricked to think we can live in both, and we can't. There's one kingdom too many. And so today we're going to parse through 
this idolatry of ourselves and maybe of us as a community and across not just this church, but the church across the world as we have so bought into this lie that two masters aren't too many, when indeed they are. Now, Anthony last week set this up, and not intentionally for this, it was just honestly one of the best sermons I've heard. If you haven't listened to it, go back and listen about the, necess- the necessity of people within the kingdom of God of being members of one another, of being together, of actually saying, no, I am my brother's keeper. Like, I will own and be part of your life. We are linked together in this as Christians. And Al says, if you're here and you're not a Christian, today might be a little weird because it's going to be hard at the church. And so maybe, maybe just sit back and may, maybe there's something in you that's like, yeah, I, I, can, I, can, I can understand some of that. But, but this is going to come, come hard at us as, as those who are in the room that would say Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior. Like you have checked that box, you've signed up for that, that's who you are, right? So we are a brother's keeper. One of the things he also said last week And he said it really brilliantly because it's weird to say from the stage that you should listen and obey your leaders. It's a tough thing to say as the leader, hey, obey your leaders, right? It just feels very awkward. But he did in a very winsome way, I think. And he's just absolutely right. When we unpack the scriptures, this is a reality. So my hope is is that what you would hear today wouldn't be this, uh, the rantings of a frustrated 35-year-old kid. And rather, man, maybe these are words from the scriptures by the Spirit from a pastor who loves you and loves this church, and loves God's church and his mission for and to this world. The, ver- the, the passage that Todd read for us is a story that has been resonating in my heart and soul for the last couple years. The story of this rich young man who approaches Jesus, and he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? How, how can I be part of what you're doing? How can I be part of your kingdom? I want to follow you. And Jesus says, well, keep the commandments, right? Do all these things. And it's like, well, I've done those. Like, I'm good. And Jesus responds to him and says, well, you know what? There's one thing you're lacking. I want you to go and sell your possession, give it to the poor, then return and follow me. The response of the rich young man was that he walked away in sadness because he was a wealthy man. Now we fully expect, and I fully expect, that verse 23 in Matthew chapter 19 would be Jesus saying, no, 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 wait a minute, it's not that big a deal. That's not what he does. The man walks away in sadness, and Jesus continues on his path of preaching the kingdom of God. There's no, 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 wait a minute, how do I convince you? How do I give you just a little bit? How do we fudge this thing enough so that you come into this? No, no, Jesus preaches the kingdom and an ethic that goes with the kingdom and then invites all to that ethic, invites all into that kingdom, and it has specifics. Jesus is the most loving person this world has ever known, but that love That love came into this world and then preached about a kingdom that had defined walls to it. But we live as if there was a verse 23 that sent Jesus compromising his kingdom to let the rich young kid in. And he didn't. 
that story has so shaped the necessity, I think, for us to somewhat speak to one another. Like Anthony said last week, prophetically into one another's lives to say, listen, when we read the scriptures and we look at our lives, is there a match? And if not, we need to be able to come at each other and say, this is not right. This is not who we are as Christians. And that's, again, that's so important here. As Christians, as Christians, you're called to this. You opted in for that, right? You, you, but I, some of us, right, we signed up for Christianity the same way you do terms and conditions on iTunes. You scroll through real fast, you click it, yeah, I don't even care what it says. I just want what the gift is at the end. The kingdom has expectations. We need to wrestle with that this morning. Now, something happened a few weeks ago that really drives why we thought last week and this week were necessary things for us to talk about. I was wrapping up preaching through Philippians chapter 3. Some of you were there. Some of you probably missed it. That's fine, right? That whole sermon through Philippians 3 talks about the willingness of Jesus and the willingness of his people to then willingly enter into suffering for the sake of the other. Like, I will let go of my privilege. I will let go of my whatever that you might flourish, even at expense to myself. So we see Christ do. So we say, well, that's, that's what we do. And chapter 3 ends with this beautiful line that our citizenship then is found where? In heaven. In the kingdom of God is where we find our citizenship. It is a citizenship that then overrules all other citizenships, all other allegiances. This is now the primary citizenship and allegiance of your life when you say, I follow Jesus. When you are reborn, renewed, redeemed, this is your new reality. You are a citizen of the kingdom of God, and its laws and its expectations, its ethics, are now your own. At the very end of that sermon, it had been an emotional week, probably. I was crying. That happened. And I just said something, and it came out, and it was not planned. It wasn't in the notes. I just said something that came out. Because I was sad and lamenting the fact of what does it mean for us to, as a church to be faithful to the brokenness that we see in our world, to willing to enter into suffering. And so just in tears, I just started saying some things I was sad and lamenting about. And one of the things that came out was I said, we need to care about kids in cages. Now, now hear me. What we're about to do is not unpack whether or not the kids in cages, that, that's for another conversation. That's not what we're doing here. But what happened was a lot of response after a whole sermon about entering into suffering, which I think is kind of a crazy idea from the Gospels, right? This whole sermon on you having a brand new citizenship, that's a little bit of a crazy idea. But all the emails we got that week, and it was significant, was that I said kids in cages. I said three words at the end of sermon in tears. Now, now a few responses to that. One, the first one, the critiques that I got, they're not crazy, and, and I, so I, I, let me just share some of them. So some was, that's ah, too political. You should get too political from the pulpit, okay? Another, another one was, well, what about other important issues, more important issues that are out there? Okay. Why didn't you talk about those? The third one, I mean, and this was, this was not as many, but it was more, uh, why would you attack our president, right? Which, which he had nothing to do with the conversation. Now, the, the first response is, 
Those critiques aren't crazy. So for the self-righteous of us in the room that would hear those and say, oh my gosh, why would they ever say It's not crazy. Those are real critiques from real people who really love Jesus. And we need to, we need to listen to that and say, okay, well, why are they saying that? Okay. The second one is, listen, we're all learning. We're all on this journey towards holiness and glorification because the reality is none of us get there this side of heaven. It comes post-Jesus' return. Then we will be glorified. Then things will be made right. Then we'll see everything. What we see in a mirror dimly now, we will see in its fullness then. Okay? So, so hear me, we are all learning. So uh, even as we talk about some weighty and heavy matters this morning, I, I just want to say to you, we're all learning this stuff. This is not, we'll get to the end, you must have arrived by the time I finish this. Or hear me, this, and I'm public enemy number one of this sermon, so please hear that. Um, I don't expect arrival for myself by the time I finish this. Okay. Um, the last one, and, and this is what the, the crux and the thrust of the sermon will be. Uh, and, and it's not the first time we've said this here. It's not the first time it's been said in church, right? But we have a massive, massive identity problem. And, and here, here's why I say that. I, I fully understand like, especially looking in hindsight, I, I, I understand how politically charged the words kids in cages are in our nation right now. I, I fully understand that. It's slipped out, and I need to be wiser. I need to be wiser in how I say things from, from the pulpit, because I know how it can be received. But therein lies the problem, doesn't it? Because those of us who have now said that our primary allegiance citizenship, ethic, way of life is now the kingdom of God and no longer the kingdom of the United States of America, why is it that the first interpretation that runs through the mind of the Christian is he's talking U.S. politics? Why is it not how would the kingdom of God so cause me to think through kids in cages? And again, this is not a debate around kids. and This is a debate around why as Christians have we so bought into a dualistic kingdom citizenship that is not offered per the scriptures. I, I, I want to say that I long for the flinch of my heart and my mind to be when I hear of pain and struggle, I don't go to whatever soundbite I was heard last on Twitter, Facebook, or whatever news source I listen to. And I lament the fact that that's not true yet. But church, we can do better, and we are better because of the presence of the Spirit of God. That so when you hear kids in cages, when you hear insert whatever difficult social issue where people in our world are hurting, the first lens is Jesus, Jesus. How would you have me feel, lament, and then enter into this? Now, the U.S. political structure might come in as an opportunity to fix all of the stuff that happens when we put the kingdom of God lens first. But we have to lament the fact that we just don't often do that. It's because we have an identity problem. So, um, since Anthony called us to candorous conversation last week, let's get even deeper into this. 
Hear me, church. There is a war that is raging for each and every person and soul in this world. The United States of America and its people there within are not immune to this war. It just has different battles. And that war is by saying, no, this kingdom, the kingdom that is the United States of America, and the kingdom of God, there is a battle between the two. Now, there, no, hear me. There's a cosmic battle between good and evil, God and Satan. That's all real. The super, that's happening behind the scenes. But there is this battle that wages between which kingdom would we so decide to live our lives by and for? And the reason why I keep saying the United States of America, because let's just be honest, we live here. This is not meant to be, like if, if, this, if we were in Italy right now, which that'd be nice, right? Uh, this would be the kingdom of Italy versus the kingdom of God. If we were in, you get the idea, this is not America's the worst country in the world, they're doing it all wrong and this country's, no, no, it's we live here, so let's talk about here. We don't need to talk about what's going on over there. We live here. This is the air we breathe. It's the water we drink. This is the culture we swim in. And so let's talk about the culture and the ethics and the realities of the kingdom of the United States of America and that of the kingdom of God. Because we're only allowed to have allegiance to one. And the other one is to fall by the wayside. Okay? So, four battles that I think are being waged, and there are more. These are the four after praying and talking through with different staff and leaders and friends that I feel we had to address this morning. Four different battles where both are saying something definitive about their position, about these things, but only one can be right, friends. And my hope is that we would leave today, hear me, the hope is that not, not that you would just parse each individual one out and exactly line up, and it's that you would get to the end and know the kingdom of God is where we are to land in absolutely everything. So here we go. The first one, we both say we value the sanctity of life. Now here's what our culture says. Here's what American culture has said and continues to say. Life is valuable and important, but here's what they don't add on to it. And if we look throughout the reality of the stories that mark the history of our nation, it's truly rather life is valued and important because the culture has said so at that time. Let's go through some things. In 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue. We all know the song. When it came to America... And what ensued there was 500 years of oppression of a people that were here before us. Now, if, you are certain, here, if you are starting to kind of recoil, I, just stay, track, press in. Um, there were 10 million plus Native Americans in this country when we arrived. And... And here, again, when I say we, I'm talking about what would become the United States of America. So the European movement west, okay, 10 plus million. By 1900, that number had dropped to 300,000. Now, some of you might say, well, that 90% of those people that were killed, that was because of disease. And hear me, you'd be right. Does that make it all that much better? 
if, if we have the kingdom of God lens on, does it make it that much better that what, was, what happened to literally millions of people was that smallpox killed millions of them? But at that time, fast forward to 1776 in the writing of the Declaration of Independence, still in this day to this document, which I get we're probably not going to change that thing. It's a historical fact, right? It's an historical document that it refers to our Native American brothers and sisters as merciless Indian savages. Our culture, life is valuable and important because the culture has said so at that time. Let's go on. Some quotes from George Washington. Indians and wolves are both beasts of prey, though they differ in shape. From the founder and father of our nation. Andrew Jackson. My original convictions upon this subject have been confirmed by the course of events for several years and experiences every day adding to their strength that those tribes cannot exist surrounded by our settlements and in continual contact with our citizens is certain. They have neither the intelligence, the industry, the moral habits, nor the desire of improvement, which are essential to any favorable change in their condition. Established in the midst of one another in a superior race, and without appreciating the causes of their inferiority, or seeking to control them, they must necessarily yield to the force of circumstances and ere long disappear. Teddy Roosevelt, I don't go so far as to think that only good Indians are dead Indians, but I believe nine out of ten are, and I shouldn't like to inquire too closely about the case of the tenth. It's a hundred years ago that was said. There's people alive today that could have heard those words said. Life is valuable and important because the culture at that time had said so. Now, here's what's very interesting. <clears throat> Franklin Delano Roosevelt, the fifth cousin of Teddy Roosevelt, said this in 1944. All of our people all over the country, except the pure-blooded Indians, are immigrants or descendants of immigrants, including even those who came over here on the Mayflower. So they began this shift. In 1928, they did this massive, uh, massive study across what was happening with the Native Americans in our nation. And some things actually turned out positively on the other side. Man, we've, we've really messed this up. Like, we've done some atrocious things here. And so there began to be a bit of a political movement and sway away from what had begun to happen. Because when assimilation didn't work, there was forced assimilation. So let's take kids from parents, let's separate kids from families, and let's put them in boarding schools that they would become like us. Will forcefully remove children from their homes on a land that was their own and take them to our schools that then they would be able to learn what they need to know to live in a land that should have been theirs in the first place. But in 1944, you begin to see a bit, a bit of shift. Well, maybe, maybe we didn't do this right. So FDR begins to look upon the people and says, ah, man, actually everyone's an immigrant except for them. Right? Everyone's an immigrant except for them. But you know what else FDR did? Was he was instrumental in sending, let me just get the number right here. I don't want to mess that up. Um, 20, no, that's not right. 120,000 Japanese people into internment camps 
during World War II. Most, I mean, at a vast majority of American citizens pulled from their homes, pulled from their jobs, forcefully put into camps. Here's an interesting story in northern Arizona. I was told this by my friends, the Johnsons. I didn't even realize this. If you go out to Loop, you will find a, a, a facility that used to be a boarding school. So again, when, 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 the, when the merciless Indian savages were the ones that, we, that, that our culture didn't love, let's throw them into that building. Then they finally closed that down, and then that same building was then used to house Japanese and intern the Japanese during World War II. Because what had changed was who our culture thought was valuable at that time. Same building for different purposes because a different people were not considered as valuable as another set of people. Same building, okay? Now, in 1988, you know what we did? President Reagan paid $20,000 in reparations to every Japanese living person that was part of that internment camp. And so there's always this kind of course correction. It was bad, it's course correction. But you notice even some of the language that's being thrown at it is so chaotic and all over the place. And I guarantee you it is based on who is in power and who that power decides is valuable. Fast forward to today. You can't get through the sanctity of life conversation without talking about the unborn. Because since 1973, no matter which study you look at, between 51 and 61 million kids have been aborted in this country. Now, the difficulty of talking through this issue is vast and deep because I know just statistically there are women in this room that have gone through that process. And my desire in bringing that up is, is, is not to condemn you. Like, we, we love you. We, we would love to sit with you and hear your story and spend time with you. But when we begin to look at the way our culture then views life in this nation, there was a shift And who was deemed unvaluable and has continued to remain unvaluable in different ways. And I, and, there's, and I get there's counter arguments to it. We need to think big picture in what we communicate to the world that 51 to 61 million unborn had their lives taken from them. Because for the last 40 years, their lives by those who were in power were deemed to be less valuable. So, so hear me, all, all of that to say this, all that is to make the point of there is a war that is raging. The first battle we're talking about is who values the sanctity of life. Now, let's talk about the church. We say we value the sanctity of life, and here's why. Because Genesis chapter 1 and 2. Then God said, 
Let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female. He created them. Psalm 139, 14, I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. There is a difference in the order of loves between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of the United States of America. The order of loves for the kingdom of America starts with self and moves to those who think the way they do. And hear me, we're, we're part of the problem, so maybe we say the way we do to those who look like us. That's, that's the order of loves of, of the kingdom of, of the world. The order of loves of the kingdom of God is the exact opposite. It starts with God it moves the family and church. Then it goes to neighbor. And guess who finishes last in itself? And we willingly enter into suffering for the sake of the other. And not because Vince said so in a sermon, because your scriptures are replete with that reality. That's the first battle. Church, there is no who we decide to value. Why? Because everyone is always valuable all the time. Why? Because they were created and made in God's image. His value placed upon them. There's no value for you and I to give because he's already given it all the value it needs. Do you see, you see the difference here? But, but let's be honest, if we begin to think through how this sanctity of life thing plays itself out in our everyday, do we not find ourselves buying into the ethic that is the kingdom of the USA? Saying, I will value and care for and speak kindly to and love the person in an order of loves that starts with me, then moves to those who look and act like me and those who think like me. Or do you look towards every person and... Let's just because it is right because it is political. If you're on the left or right, do you left? Do you see the rights as beautiful, as worth cherishing, as valuable, as those you should die for and suffer for, or do you see them as the enemy? Because church, that's the that's the kingdom of the U.S. speaking. That's not the kingdom of God, and vice versa. That's the first battle. The second battle, and I need to speed up. I'm sorry, and I'm very hot. We both say we value truth, okay? And you'll hear this kind of, this is even a critique on the church. You guys, you guys don't believe in, in reason or truth. You guys are just faith and fairy tales and all this. That's a lie. The, the, the culture, our culture says, you know, we value truth, we value reason. Here, let, let, me just, let me just take you back, another little history lesson, Okay? If you go back in our past, and this is going pre-USA, pre so we're going a bit global, but we'll zoom back in on, the, on USA. So um, for thousands of years, you know what defined truth for our, for our world and culture? In other words, what the masses would accept as public truth, it, it was this kind of hybrid of observation and kind of what they could see and touch, because that's all they knew, right? Mixed with, but there's a God, there's something spiritual that's 
really propping this thing up, propagating it, and so that's how they kind of navigated the world. And so uh, across all cultures, you see this. There was this hybrid of what could people touch, what was right there intangible with this kind of off-spiritual deity-being thing. You find in all these cultures different amounts of deities, all that kind of stuff, and they kind of came together to form what was public truth for people. This was true really all the way up until you get into kind of the early early parts of the first century, and even just prior to that in the first century BC, we begin to see these Greek thinkers like Socrates and Plato and Aristotle. And so Aristotelian Platonic thought was saying, you know, it's more kind of what goes down here. God kind of handles these bigger things up there. But really what we know to be true is what we see and can observe in this world. So it's beginning to slowly push God out of the equation. And it was the precursor for what would come 15, 16, 1700 later, years later in the scientific revolution. And what, what do we know happened in the scientific revolution is now what was deemed public truth had to go through the lens of the scientific method and reason. So what would then be accepted as public truth, what all people would buy into, had to go, the lens that it had to pass through was the scientific method and reason. And so that's what truth was. That has carried the United States of America for largely its entire life, founded in 1776. The ideas of the scientific revolution of the Enlightenment formed the foundations of our nation. While all of this was happening in Europe for 200 years, they're discovering new things, reason and science become the lens for truth. Those same thinkers, those same people, although, listen, packed with some faith, moved westward to the Americas and colonized here and were shaped in a dualistic clinging on to of both God and reason, science, as how truth was found. There is now a switch that I think is happening that I think we can observe and see. With a new lens for public truth is moving away from reason and surely moved away from God and has moved towards rhetoric. It's no longer what you and I can prove. It's no longer what makes the most sense. It's who can convince you the best with the best argument. And how can they then demonize a separate and different viewpoint so that their rhetoric seems even stronger? So now public truth because it's so accessible to be able to share an opinion and a thought these days because of technology. But hear me, I think the new lens for truth in our world is moving away from reason and moving towards rhetoric. And friends, that's a scary reality. Why? Because we preach something different in the kingdom of God. And that that There is ultimate truth. There is absolute truth. That it doesn't change by the whims of the culture. It doesn't just decide, hey, well, you know, well, now most of us think this way, or I'm able to convince you of this, and so now let's think. No, no, the the church, the kingdom of God says, no, there is this objective truth, and it's found in two things. The person and character of God and the word that he's left us. 
And so while we see a culture after culture after culture changing what is true, hear me, and like what was true 10 years ago is not true today anymore in some ways. 20 years before that, 30 years. And hear me, even in our piety that we have in all of our belief in what we're discovering, it will change in five more years. I guarantee it because truth is malleable in the kingdom of America. Controlled by the loudest and most powerful voice. In the kingdom of God, let's look at some scriptures. It's just the opposite. John 1.17 for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. You want to know truth? Look at Jesus. John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, and I end the life. You understand the world and life? Study me. John 16, 13, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. So now we've been given the spirit of God that then illuminates what is true. John 17, 17, Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. What God has said, that is truth. Period. You and I don't need to worry. Okay, well, what, what do we need to think about this now? The word says it. But therein lies a problem. We don't even really know what the Bible says anymore. We've talked about this what, a handful of weeks ago, that the biblical literacy in our country across the entire nation is under 10%. We don't know what the thing says anymore because we don't read it. It's it's not read your Bible because then you get to heaven. It's not read the Bible because then God smiles at you. It's thanks, Andy. It's read the Bible because you get to learn truth. You get to learn and love and know Jesus and God. Psalm one nineteen one sixty. The song. The sum of your word is truth. I have a quote. In the interest of being good citizens, of being civil, Christians have lost the ability to say what they believe is true. That loss is, I suggest, a, coral, a correlative to the depoliticization, oh my gosh, politicization, that's a tough word, politicization of the church as a community capable of challenging the imperial pretensions of the modern state. In other words, we've wimped out. We've lost what, we, what, what is so clearly preached by Christ in the word about what the kingdom of God is and what is true that we've cowered because we don't even know our own stuff so we aren't even capable to push back against the things of this world. And so what do we do in the lack of knowing our own thing? We adopt their thing. And again, I remind us we're part of the problem, so we adopt our own thing that we've helped develop. The question is, can do, if, if this is where primary allegiance is for the people of God, do we not often find ourselves saying, no, no, no I'm, I'm going to buy into this subjectivity. I'm going to buy into this ever-changing truth thing because you know what? You convinced me. 
I don't care if it's completely opposite to what the scriptures and the character of God is and what it says. This just sounds better. It tickles the ears a bit more. It seems to make more sense in the cultural landscape that is the USA where I live and breathe. Or do we say, your word is truth. We have truth, friends, and that's okay. You're not being a pompous jerk by believing that. Because when, you, when we begin, the, the Bible, the Word of God, the person of God, that is truth. That's where truth is found. Believe me, you start learning a lot of stuff that will humble you real fast. It can't, if you know the Word of God, pride begins to leave your life because you realize the depths of our inadequacy and the brilliance of His glory. That's the second one. The third one. We both say we value morality. What does the world say? No, yeah, more morality? Yeah, we're pro-morality. Be a good person. Now, now here, here's the major and significant hole in be a good person. One, you can't. Two, here's... What is good is always changing. There's no definition for what is good because what is good is constantly in flux. So you're always striving for this new created goodness by, again, whoever has so rhetorically defined what is good for you. And so then you have, that's, why do you think, why do you think you have such massive generational gaps in, in, in what is deemed good. It's not because our baby boomers, boomers are crazy and they didn't get it. It's because they were preached to a different type of goodness than what our millennials and Gen Zers are getting. And so when you give them two definitions of good, surely then one's going to hate the other. And that's what's happened. Different races, ethnicities, majority, minority... We've been preached different things of what it means to be good. And because of that, we then judge the other person because they're not operating on the same definition we are. That's, that's what's going on in the world. Think, think about this. Let's just go through some things. Um, if you just begin to think through the ever-changing landscape that was sex and intimacy in America over the last 300 years, what was good, right, pious, and moral changes every week. Like, like every week, there's something different that's allowed or not allowed. Let, let's just zoom in on the pornography thing because it is so rampant. It was deemed super, like, did you know, it, it, I Love Lucy. Anyone ever watch, or ever watch that show? I Love Lucy, you guys remember that show? When they would go to bed, does anyone remember how many beds I Love Lucy and Ricky Ricardo slept in? Two. And they were married, right? What's another little part you didn't realize that? They both would sleep and it would be off the side of the camera with one leg sticking out of the bed just so that they looked as pious and holy as possible. Because it would be deemed too scandalous that they would both be under the covers even though there were separate beds. Now, I'm, I'm just going to, you watch... Look, I know a lot of you watch it. You watch The Bachelorette, and it's like, hey, how many women can, can this guy sleep with? What is that room called? Jeff, come on, you can say it. What's the room called? The Fantasy Suite. 
and we laugh and giggle. There's a thing on our cable television called the fantasy suite, and, and you're just like, what, how many people? I sure hope they hook up. And if you watch, so listen, Jesus still loves you less, less but he still loves you, okay? Um, I'm just, again, this is not a conversation around, around primary, about sexual, it's, it's about, do you see how you can't keep up? Then pornography hits the internet and it's rampant, right? And it's all good. Enjoy yourself, watch whatever you want. And now what you're getting is, is you're getting secular publications, secular studies that have nothing to do with God, Jesus, or our morality. And they say, you guys got to stop that stuff. Because when you watch it, you're ruining your life. It causes addiction. It will ruin your marriage. It will ruin any future prospect of marriage. Like, this is not, it's not just the scriptures. This is now the world preaching to us who are somehow still, this is a major problem in the church, friends. Now the world's telling people in the church, this stuff's killing you. You got to stop. Again, the definition of what is good, right, moral, and true, it changes all the time and creates an impossible achievement for the people living in this kingdom. Let's look at the other, another one. <coughs> Excuse me. Money. Money. Okay, 1776, right? We found this country. There was a book being written over in Europe at the exact same time, published in 1776, the ideals of which had already begun to permeate through European culture and then began to move west. Why? Because those people packed with that knowledge moved west and founded this nation. The book was The Wealth of Nations by Adam Smith. And so what defined the understanding of economic responsibility and economic growth, economic security, economic flourishing was predominantly the thoughts of this man. And that has carried the United States of America for 250 years. A little bit less. Now, I don't know if you've read it. I've read it. And there's things in there that are great. That, that, that you're like, okay, that makes sense and that lines up with this. Or, and I, I guess wisdom would say that's a good idea and you should do this, that, and the other. Okay. But here's what's happening. is You're beginning to see people in this country are, are not quite as keen on Adam Smith's Wealth of Nations view and way of doing economics in this country. And so what do they begin to do? They fight, and they demonize, they scream, and they yell, and they pass out the rhetoric to be able to try and convince the church that one of their economic systems is the way we are to care about our money. The morality of money in the church, I would say more than almost any other issue, is one that has been shaped by the American culture rather than the kingdom of God. Because please tell me, when you read your scriptures, like, and I'm not, this is not a mic drop moment. Let's please sit down and talk about, and if you can convince me that the scriptures are full of get more and more and more and more. If you find that, let's talk about that. I don't see that in the Bible. What I see is continuous, regular, sacrificial 
generosity, that those around you would flourish. It's just what I see. And hear me, I, again, I'm, I, I wrestle with that every day. Trying to navigate, well, can I, can I, get, can I get that? Or is that, is that too much? Should I have? And hear me, that, that's not, this whole sermon is not about me making those decisions for you on what that looks like. I'm just saying, again, the way that money is treated in our culture is very different than the way that the kingdom of God tells us to treat it. We could go through a handful more, but just for the sake of time, we won't. Who gets to decide the definition of good in our world? And hear me, again, it's often those in the majority, those with influence, and those with power. And when that stuff begins to shift, those with majority influence and power, they begin to get really upset. We begin to get really upset because we've gotten really used to it. What happens in the kingdom of God, though? Our morality, okay, be perfect. (laughs) It's not, hey, just be a good person, let's change, it's, it's literally be perfect. Perfect doesn't change. Perfect means perfect. Do everything right. Be like God. Matthew 5, 48. You must therefore, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. 1 Peter 1, 15 and 16. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. Ephesians 5, 3. But among you there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity, or of greed, because these are improper of God's holy people. It's not, ah, these are, yeah, they're not that big a deal. It's not, again, there's not a verse, we expect a verse 23, ah, gee, it's not that big a deal. Come on back. These things are improper for God's holy, set-apart, empowered people. We don't do these things. It's necessary absolutely necessary that we bring up the gospel right now. Because this is impossible, right? That that there would never be a sniff, a whiff of any of these things in any of the people that call God as Father and call the church and the kingdom of God as home. It's impossible. So we go to Jesus who through all things are possible, who, being in the very nature of Christ, lived the life you and I could not live. Where we always fall short, he never did. The death you and I deserve to die, he died for us. The resurrection we could never attain for ourselves, he procured in defeating Satan's sin and death and rising on a Sunday. The life where we wanted to be reunited with our God in heaven, we could not climb high enough, so he came down to us. And everything, all this does is say, move to Jesus, move to Jesus, move to Jesus. But if I'm going to be honest, sometimes we use the gospel as a cop-out for our sin. In church, it just can't be that way because it is improper. It is improper for these things to be amongst God's holy people. So we run to the gospel, we embrace the gospel, we preach the gospel, we celebrate the gospel, we live and pursue and love Jesus in thanksgiving that he has achieved what we could not, but we should never use it in an abusive way 
to justify our actions of saying this stuff isn't a big deal. Again, the kingdom of God be perfect as, as, as Christ is perfect. And then the kingdom of the world, be a good person that's always changing. And hear me, I think we fall short in this one, so we, we get a little scared. But the answer is not run to this side, it's run to Jesus. When you fall short in the expectations of the kingdom of God, we say, ah, I can't do it, so I guess I'll just fudge a bit over here. No, no, no. You go upward to our Father in heaven. You go horizontal to your community and brothers and sisters like Anthony spoke about last weekend who hold you accountable to the ethic and the expectations of the kingdom of God. There's a battle waging around this thing of morality and we have to stop giving in and going the other way. The last one, and I know I'm keeping you long, I do apologize, but this is the last one and we can't, we can't leave this one off. We both say we possess the answer. The answer for our world is you and me. The answer for the world to, to figure out all the brokenness and figure out all the pain, to figure out why all these things are happening is other human beings. And hear me, oftentimes it's other human beings, literally not me, I don't want to get my hands dirty, you guys figure it out on Capitol Hill. I'll, I'll, I'll write a status. I'll change my Facebook picture. I'll tweet something out. I'll be enraged. I'll be upset. I'll share a meme. I'll, I'll echo chamber my ideas that seem more just than those crazies on the other side of the aisle. I'm not going to actually show up. I'm not actually going to cradle seven-year-old kid who's just lost his only parent and has now finding himself in the foster system. All in outrage, post stuff and say stuff and get in my echo chambers about what I see happen at the border. But I'm not going to spend my week vacation I get off of work to drive down there to go into one of the border cities and sit down with people waiting in line in Tijuana but I will yell about it. I will tell other people how they need to be spending their money, but heaven forbid I would forsake my own need or no, no, my own want for stuff to send money to churches in the border cities that are caring for people that don't have food, drink, or comfort. And that is all, hear me, that's the way the culture and the kingdom of the world thinks. We can fix this. Someone, we'll, we'll, we'll figure this out. Jesus, the, the answer that the kingdom of God preaches is Jesus and a gospel-empowered people. It's Jesus and a gospel-empowered people. You are the answer. Here's the thing. 
That, that's what's so crazy about this. Humanism is going to say, well, humanity is the answer, right? But, it, but it's, it's just so far off because it lacks and is devoid of the power of God. The, the ethic and the way of doing it, that is the way of God. Because when you have a culture that is so tied into a false understanding of their finances and security, a false understanding of truth, a false understanding of morality, a false understanding of individualism, a false understanding, etc., 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 and then you tell those same people you're the answer, they will take all the other things you have told them and try and apply that to the answer when all of those things are not the answer. But when you have so a people formed by radical generosity, by selflessness and not individual, by community that leans on one another, by a people that are empowered by the Spirit of God in a word that is truth that says, this is how we live, we are the answer. But man, it's really hard. Some last verses. Isaiah 53, 5, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And by his wounds, we are healed. Peace and healing come through Jesus. Acts 4, 12, there is no salvation and no one else for there is no other name under heaven given among men which we must be saved. John 18, 36, Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that it might be, not be delivered over the Jews but my kingdom is not from this world. The answer is not fighting and yelling. The answer is the way of Jesus. Hebrews 12, 14, make every effort to live in peace with everyone and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. N.T. Wright says this, civil discourse isn't the answer to everything, but uncivil discourse isn't the answer to anything. Stop fighting. It moves the ball nowhere except in your own pride to think you're more right than other people. 1 John 3:18 Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. It's not enough for us just to say the right things, to post the right status, to be enraged in our echo chambers. We must mobilize. That's what happens in the kingdom of God. Karl Barth Jesus Christ, as he attested for us in the Holy Scripture, is the one word of God which we have to hear and which we have to trust and have to obey in life and in death. We reject the false doctrine as though the church could and would have to acknowledge as a source of its proclamation apart from and beside this one word of God, Jesus. Still other events and powers Figures and truths is God's revelation. In other words, stop searching for other things to tell you how we are to do this. We have Jesus, we have his word. That's how we live in the kingdom of God. So what characterizes our life? Where is our citizenship? Where is our allegiance? What will we leave here with and say, oh, that, that's, that is where I live my life. Now, to go back to our initial story, we had this rich young man that came to, uh, sorry, came to Jesus. What we've done 
is again, we've hoped that Jesus would run in verse 23 and come and get us, and we think he has. Okay. What we do now is we go and we sell our possessions, and we turn and follow him. Now, along the way, we'll probably gather a lot more possession, and we'll have to re-wrestle with the reality that we'll have to sell that too. And notice I'm using possession figuratively. I'm not just talking money. But the reality of the life of the Christian is it's not just a one-time thing and then you're there. It's this daily, continuous letting go of the things that we acquire for self that we might enter into and be faithful to the calling of the kingdom of God. Sometimes we'll hold on to those things for too long. Sometimes we'll hoard it and we'll hide it in a satchel on our side. But the Holy Spirit's going to keep convicting. And he's going to keep telling you that's not the way we do things. doesn't mean that you're not a Christian if you do that. But the question we have to wrestle with today is do we see the pitfalls of living for a different kingdom? They are incongruent. It's not even if you wanted to live in both. You just can't because they're so opposite of one another. And so hear me, when you choose one, the Bible is true. You worship, serve, and love that master while forsaking the other because they're so diametrically opposed, you can't have both. So the resolution for the people of God for our church this morning is, what at least every day will we get up and say, this is what I choose? I'm going to chase this in the way that I view people, the way that I view life, all people, everywhere. This is the way I'm going to understand truth. I'm not going to be so swayed by this rhetoric and these ideas. No, no, I have truth right here, and I can know it, and I can study it, and I can live by it. What morality is going to define your life? Is it that of an ever-shifting goodness in our world, or is it the concrete word and person of God? What answer are we going to be? Are we going to be the same answer that has not worked? Hear me since the beginning of time? Or will the church wake up and see Jesus is the answer and as we run faithfully after him, the church becomes the answer for a broken, hurting, and dying world? That's what we have to decide. Which kingdom will we choose? And hear me, the status quo makes a terrible idol. The church has lived in this middle ground status quo for far too long and it is maybe the most deceptive idol because it makes us look a little bit Christian, just Christian enough, just kingdom enough to fool the rest of us and I'm part of that. But it's not. Let's not fool ourselves any longer. This is the kingdom. This is not the kingdom of God. Which one will we choose? To which kingdom will we give our allegiance. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your grace, your mercy, your love, hope, and peace. Guide us as we sing and respond now. And Holy Spirit... We stand no chance at any of this 
without your conviction, without your work, without the renewing and transforming that you do. And so would you please come in and all the things that we would so know we want, that you would just do, because Lord, we are a fickle people. And Lord, where there is areas where we need to repent, will we repent? Areas, God, where we have knowingly, God, chosen a kingdom that is not your own. God, would you forgive us? And God, would you give us the power and the strength to choose your kingdom first every day? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.